Tagline us in. Sure. This is this is how I'm gauging how fresh you're coming into this episode. What is what does she have for a tagline? Oh, okay. What's she working with? Uh, hi everybody, and welcome to Maintenance Phase, the podcast that is searing off Lady Gaga's meat dress and serving that <laughs> and only that. <laughs> Because we're talking about a carnivore. I am Michael Hobbs. I am Aubrey Gordon. And if you want to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash maintenance phase. This month's bonus episode is an illness influencer spectacular. Exciting. Exciting. Also, I should mention that I don't know if I'm allowed to mention stuff like this. Uh, I'm also a YouTuber now. I'm, <laughs> I, I used to make video essays and I stopped doing that and I missed it. And so I just made a 20 minute long video about cancel culture that you can find on my YouTube channel, whose name I forget. But if you Google Michael Hobbs YouTube, it probably comes up. Smash that subscribe button. Smashing the button. <laughs> uh, so I was like on the fence about doing this episode. I've been doing research on this for like weeks. And I was kind of like, uh, I don't know, like every other like lefty podcast has a Jordan Peterson episode. Every lefty journalist has their, like, Jordan Peterson article. And then you told me that you're coming in fresh, that, like, you barely know anything about Jordan Peterson. And then I was like, okay, now I'm I just want to teach Aubrey Gordon about this. Well, and I think everybody everywhere has their Jordan Peterson episode, but I get the impression that few of those really dig in on the carnivore diet nonsense. True. This this podcast aims to be the fillet of the podcasts about Jordan <laughs> Peterson. I mean, all all beef metaphors. Yeah, you're at a churrascaria. Tell me, yeah, tell me what you know. Who who is this Jordan Peterson guy? Give me give me everything you know. He's a professor of like psychology or something, yep. right? Yep. My impression is that he's done quite a bit of work to lend some sort of like legitimacy by virtue of his academic work to things like men's rights activists and quote unquote gender critical feminists who Mm -hmm. I would just call TERFs Mm -hmm. and that he has had quite a bit to say about cancel culture and the corrosive nature of cancel culture according to Mm -hmm. him most recently the thing that I did see is that he wrote a whole op-ed about how he quit his job because he was being canceled. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> hang on. Which one is it? What? <laughs> I think I think you saw that because I was like furiously tweeting about it. <laughs> I might have seen it from you. I was like, what I on earth? I that might be right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is a rancid flank stake of an argument. I've yes. been so wrapped up in like... Anti-fat garbage people. Oh, yeah. I have really missed the uh, quite a few of the headlines about Jordan Peterson. You've missed the, all the beef grifters, and I'm going to introduce you to the beef grifting environment. Beef grifters. Yeah, sounds great. What I basically wanted to do was look into the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson and also the specific ways that Jordan Peterson, I think partly inadvertently, ended up launching a new fad diet. I mean, I looked into this. The the carnivore diet as a thing essentially did not exist before Jordan Peterson talked about it on the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah, I mean, it didn't exist before Jordan Peterson talked about it because why would it? <laughs> why on earth would anyone be like, I'm only eating, I assume it's red meat, right? It's worse. We have a clip. Oh my God, I can't wait. Okay, so this is what happened. I stopped snoring the first week. I thought, what the hell? Then I lost seven pounds the first month. My legs were numb on the sides. That's gone. And my psoriasis disappeared. The last thing that went away for me, I was still having a bitch of a time with mood regulation, and that sucked because when I changed my diet, I didn't respond to antidepressants properly anymore. They weren't working. I was still really anxious in the morning up to three months ago, like horribly, and then it would get better all day. People said, well, you're under a lot of stress. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I've been under a lot of stress for like 10 years. It's like, it's a lot, but it it wasn't any more stressful than helping my daughter deal with her illness. That's for sure. That, no, this is something different. And she said to me, um, quit eating greens. And I thought, oh, really? Jesus, Michaela, I'm eating cucumbers, lettuce, broccoli, and chicken and beef. It's like, I have to cut out the goddamn greens? It's like, try it for a month. Okay. Within a week, I was... 25% less anxious in the morning. Within two weeks, 75%, and I've been better every single day. Here's the coolest thing. I've had gum disease since I was 25. 
It's gone. It's like what the hell? And you've done you've done no blood work, so you don't know what your lipid lipid profile right. is. Or no, I'll get that done again when I go back. Do you take to any vitamins? No, no, I eat beef and salt and water. That's it. And I never cheat ever. Not even a little bit. No Nothing. soda. No wine. I drink club soda. I'm curious about this. I'm very curious, and yeah, I think me I'm gonna, too. I might try it. This is like the reverse version of the supersize me recap yeah do you know what i mean it's like the good news version <laughs> this is the same like numbness on the side of your legs the old joke is what do you get when you play a country song backwards you get your house back you get your wife back you get your car <laughs> yeah, back that's right and this is like the same thing it's like he's getting his gums back he's getting his yeah. legs back his sleep back i mean it is truly wild to talk about someone only eating did he say beef? It literally just beef. Only beef. He's very careful throughout this interview to say, you know, it's an N of one. I'm not recommending this for anybody else. You know, I'm not a medical doctor. Don't listen to me. I'm in unique circumstances. So to his credit, he's not necessarily boosting this. Right. He's contextualizing. Yes. But then there's an actual question of whether you can describe results like this without implicitly promoting something. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think like, look, man, if you weren't there to promote it, you wouldn't really be talking about it. And he, he does the thing where he's like, I'm not recommending it to anybody else, but... I've had people talk to me about it and like I've never heard of anybody having a bad experience. Right? He often follows that up immediately with this sort of qualifier of, you know, I'm not telling you you should do it, but the results for me have been really amazing. Again, is still promoting it. It's just kind of promoting, promoting it. it with caveats, right? So that's kind of where this episode is going to end up. Oh, are we going to do a record scratch? You're probably wondering how I got here. We're doing a little freeze frame at the beginning. We're going to go back now. I love now. this. I'm very excited about it. So we're going to do a little background on Jordan Peterson himself. I want to kind of establish who this guy is and why his pretty weird advice is considered credible. Uh-huh. So he's born in 1962 in Edmonton, Alberta. He grows up in Fairview, which is a small town. His mom is a librarian. His dad is a school teacher. He seems to have a Fairly typical kind of middle class, mm. leave it to beaver style upbringing, it seems. Right. In semiotics, you would call it a hegemonic upbringing. Right? He's a, he has a hegemonic upbringing, at least as yeah. described by him. Yeah. He says that he starts struggling with depression and anxiety at age 13. At, at one point, I mean, he says that the, the depression is so severe. He says, imagine that you wake up and you remember that all of your family was killed in a horrible accident yesterday. Holy shit. Like That's how he feels when he wakes up every day. That's awful. It's awful. And it, it seems like a lot of his adolescence and his younger adult years are characterized by him struggling to understand what's going on with his own mental and physical health. He says that he tries politics to deal with it. He joins some kind of center-left political slash socialist political organizations as a kid. He tries religion. He tries getting into the church. Nothing really works. In college, he says he has like this this crippling imposter syndrome. He he has this idea that he's kind of acting. He's kind of sleepwalking through his life and he's playing this role of a person, but he's not really connected to his own actions. He's like he's he's in this kind of like half dissociated state. Mm. During this period, he seems to find comfort in biological certainty. He he starts to formulate this theory of the world that there's there's ideology, there's people who see things through a lens of their own personal experiences and their own beliefs. This is what he hates about the socialists that he goes to college with. And mm. there's also people who react to the world as it is. So he starts to take a lot of comfort in what he describes as like biological realities. Like there is truth in the universe. Mm. In his first book, he says, I discovered that beliefs make the world in a very real way, that beliefs are the world in a more than metaphysical sense. This discovery has not turned me into a moral relativist, however. Quite the contrary. I've become convinced that the world that is belief is orderly, that there are universal moral absolutes. I believe that individuals and societies who flout these absolutes, in ignorance or in willful opposition, are doomed to misery and eventual dissolution. To borrow a phrase from a podcaster whose work I enjoy, this is all just the sound of red flags flapping in the wind. <laughs> Just anytime someone says to me, like, I believe in moral absolutes, I'm like, whoa, whoa, 
okay. I know, and also that, like, other people are driven by ideology, but not me. Totally. And also, like, what I hear them saying is, if there's nuance here, I'm uninterested in it. Right. If there are solutions here, I don't want to know. All I want to know right. is this person did a thing that I think is absolutely categorically wrong, and there's no more to discuss here. You uh, you sound like one of the SJWs that he will later own in numerous YouTube videos, Aubrey. Oh, I'm fully preparing to get owned <laughs> real hard. As a, to- like, just a humorless feminist. Really, I'm about to get totally fucking owned by Jordan Peterson. I mean, I think, to me, what he's describing is the process of becoming a conservative. Yeah. We've talked a lot on the show about how formerly fat people are oftentimes the most fat phobic in this very interesting, I think, human process where you think that if you have overcome something, it is therefore overcomable. And so other people who refuse to overcome it are weak. Mm. A lot of his work academically is about this dichotomy or what I consider to be a false dichotomy, but the dichotomy that he keeps raising between chaos and order. Mm. He's someone who considered that his life and his mind was really chaotic and he was able to impose order on it. And one of the ways that he feels like he was able to tame his chaotic mind was through the order of a universe where absolutes exist. Uh That was something that he found really comforting. And what he tries to do throughout his career is, you know, impose that on other people. Which I think makes sense, right? If you're like, I beat this thing back. I have a sense that I did this myself and it was hard, but it was worth it and everything's better. So why are you complaining about things being bad when the solution is so clear? Right. But what that doesn't take into account is, do you have resources that other people don't have? Right. There is like all of this stuff that gets shut out when we get into this sort of like meritocracy kind of narrative yeah. about our own personal stories. And also just like, what if people are just different from you? Yeah. <laughs> like not even like demographically, but just like, what if just like people tried that and it doesn't work? <laughs> Yeah, what if somebody has a like a kind of depression and anxiety that responds to something other than yours does? (laughs) That's also a possibility. (laughs) So, you know, this is me kind of projecting onto this. This is me creating my own interpretation, obviously. I don't think that he's explicitly saying that like I am building my worldview from my own personal experience, but I think that that's something that all of us obviously do. But I think that especially straight, white, hegemonic dudes Mm. are not really trained to like see that that is what they are doing, right? Like I am Mm -hmm. applying my personal experience to the world. I am making that the basis of my worldview. Men are not told that like this is the process they are going through. They are told that the process they're going through is like the process of seeking truth. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So this part's really boring. This is like the Wikipedia stuff. He (laughs) goes to grad school. He does his PhD. He becomes a psychology professor at Harvard for five years. And then he gets a post in 1998 at the University of Toronto. And somehow when he's doing all of this academic work, he's also seeing 20 patients a week. Whoa. He's like a very productive guy. And like, it seems quite prestigious. He has like a lot of publications. And I've read things by other people in his field that he's like, he's a well-respected guy in his field. This is not some like crank that like started doing crank shit elsewhere. It was like people in psychology were like, yeah, he's a well-respected psychologist. So what is the nature of that work? Because all that I have heard about is the shit that seems real trolly to me. I, uh, I like it when you sit on my shoulder and you look at my notes. And I'm like, oh, the next, the next section of the episode is going to tell Aubrey about his work. And you're like, Mike, what does his work say? Oh, you're welcome for that segue. Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so, okay. In 1999, he publishes his first book, which is called Maps of Meaning. I have heard, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that before he becomes famous, the book only sold roughly 500 copies. Oh, wow. You know, it's very academic. It's 602 pages long, the version of it that I have. It is (laughs) catastrophically unreadable. Oh, really? Man, I have read some books for various podcasts, Aubrey. I've never read something like this terminally unmeaningful. It's absolutely incredible. So I'm, I'm going to send you a screen grab of, uh, you're not going to believe me, but I swear to God, I'm being generous. And like this paragraph isn't that bad. Uh, let me open it up. Oh, it's a brick of text. Look at all of the stuff that's going on in this paragraph, right? There's like five things in italics 
There's a shitload of parentheses. There's basically like something in parentheses every sentence. There's quotation marks. There are two M dashes within a parenthetical (laughs) in a sentence that has multiple other parentheticals and a semicolon. (laughs) Like it is... There are clauses on clauses on clauses happening here. I should have sent you a trigger warning. <laughs> Look what it does to your body to try to understand this fucking paragraph. My eyes are <laughs> bouncing around on this image file that you sent because it is so disorienting. So I'm sending you, I copy pasted this into Word and I cleaned it up. Oh, did you? <laughs> it's still gibberish. This is the thing. Oh my God. Myth is not primitive proto-science. It is a qualitatively different phenomenon. Science might be considered, quote, description of the world with regards to those aspects that are consensually apprehensible. Myth can be regarded as, quote, the description of the world as it signifies. The mythic universe is a place to act, not a place to perceive. Myth describes things in terms of their unique or shared effective valence, their value, their motivational significance. The sky and the earth of the Sumerians are not the sky and earth of modern man, therefore. They are the great father and mother of all things. This is the cleaned up version. (laughs) You know that I'm on a big writing deadline currently, that I am like hammering out pages and pages, and... This is my nightmare. These are like my oh literal my nightmares of like, I'll wake up in the morning and read what I wrote the day before. And it's going to be just this. I know. The mythic know. universe is a place to act, not to perceive. Like, oh, oh God. God. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. It's not better in context. I've read <laughs> this entire chapter and this this paragraph does not make any sense. And it oh sounds smart. Like myth is not proto-science. It is different. Okay, was anyone saying that it was proto-science? Not really. <laughs> so you're like deep... Sorry, I, I, I can't keep talking about this. <laughs> I can't keep talking about this. <laughs> so behind all of this stuff, he gives a million lectures. I have spent like the last six weeks trying to understand what the fuck this dude is talking about. To give him some credit, behind all of this jargon and his just like very not accurate description of various cultures, myths, he there's actually a very interesting insight. Mm. What he says is that human beings are responding much more to narratives than they are to science and information. Oh. We all want to think of ourselves as walking through a universe of facts, right? Like, it's going to rain today, therefore I'm going to wear a jacket, right? We all, we all think that that's what we're doing. But what he's saying is that narratives are much more important for how we form our understandings of the world, understandings of other people. We filter everything, including ourselves, through stories, which like I think is a genuinely profound insight. Absolutely. And it's also something that I will say from previous organizing life, it's something that's borne out by quite a bit of political research, right? People don't generally change their minds on political issues because of the facts. Right. They change their minds because of people's stories and because they hear other people like them say, you know, I used to think this, but now I think this. And that feels like giving them permission to change their minds. I think this is just true. I think he's just right right here. I think he is too. And I also think, you know, I've come across this before. He's not the only person to be saying this, of course. Sure. I've seen people who've written about this that have said that, you know, metaphors are also really powerful. So if you think about a topic like immigration, Mm. one way to present immigration is as like an invasion, right? There's people coming from the southern border, these like hordes coming into the country, right? Another way to think about immigration is like as a life raft. Like there's people out there that need help and we're inviting them in and we're going to help them. Yeah. So Jordan Peterson is the worst imaginable messenger for this particular point. But underneath all of this prose, he is actually making some good points. And like, uh-huh. if you do like ninja ass old Google searches, you can find <laughs> he's quoted in the New York Times and like various random stories. There's an NPR article about him before any of the sort of famous stuff happens. He, he shows up on panel shows in Toronto he he's just someone who like he's actually building somewhat of a reputation as a public figure hmm. throughout the course of the 2000s. And in September of 2016 is when he like really gets famous. So over this fall, the Canadian government is debating something called C16, which is an amendment to the Canadian Human Rights Act and Criminal Code that I cannot stress this enough 
is going to add gender identity to an existing law. <laughs> this is like a relatively minor update to an existing anti-discrimination law that already prohibits discrimination on the grounds of race and gender and sexual orientation. And so the Canadian government is like, well, we need to add gender identity to this. So they add this to this existing law. It's ultimately is like not that big of a deal. Well, also not that big of a deal in Canada, a thing we still haven't done in the United States. (laughs) So (laughs) I know I'm like, like, this is table stakes. And it's like, we haven't done it yet. (laughs) 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 So on September 27th, 2016, Canada has not passed this yet, but they're like discussing it. Jordan Peterson posts, God help me, a three-hour-long lecture on YouTube about this amendment. It's called Professor Against Political Correctness. He says that the Canadian government is going to imprison you if you misgender a trans person. (laughs) It's one of these things that really frustrates me because people are like, oh, you don't understand the context. Like, what about Jordan Peterson's, like, what, you know, what about the broader context of what Jordan Peterson is saying? And like, I sat down and watched this fucking thing. The first like five minutes, he talks about how universities are taken over by cultural Marxists. He says that the only reason this law is going to get passed I'm, I'm going to quote him. He says, I can't help but manifest the suspicion that it's partly because our current premier is a lesbian in her sexual preference. Ugh. I don't think it's relevant to the political discussion, except insofar as the LGBT community has become extraordinarily good at organizing themselves and has a fairly pronounced and very, very sophisticated radical fringe. I'll tell you what, as someone who spent a lot of time organizing the LGBT community... I'm honestly pretty flattered. <laughs> I know. Thanks. I'm like, we are well organized. Thank you. It's just straightforward anti-trans conservative garbage. He says Bullshit. that non-binary yeah. people don't exist. Like, there's no evidence that non-binary people exist. <laughs> right. Conveniently disregarding the evidence that people are telling you they're non-binary. Hearsay. It's all hearsay. Nailed it. But then what's fascinating to me about this is, you know, he's somewhat of a media figure, but still he's just one random professor, right? And this bill has not passed there's kind of like nothing there, right? It's basically like random professor gives like eh, kind of shitty lecture. But this becomes like a huge national story and like a month long debate. So the day after he publishes this lecture, it shows up in the student newspaper and the right wing press in Canada picks up on it. And then two days after that, the BBC comes out like an, a weirdly sympathetic profile. Mm. Where it's like, oh, like the the professor who questions the trans dogma or whatever. And it's like, so we've now whipped up this basically like fairly inconsequential, like dude says asshole thing in a lecture. We've now kind of created a debate out of thin air out of this. Like nothing has actually happened. Well, listen, myth is not primitive proto-science. <laughs> exactly. It's... <laughs> As the best book I've ever read told me. It's a place to act, not to perceive. Come on. <laughs> you know this. <laughs> it's, so, it's so ridiculous. He basically like becomes this public figure overnight. So within, I think it's six months, he's earning $80,000 a month on Patreon. Holy shit. So he ends up being interviewed for various articles. There's a million profiles of him. As kind of like meet the man who's like the most important thinker on the new right. And, you know, he goes on politically incorrect. I mean, within a year, he does a 160 city speaking tour. He's like fish. He's like going around the entire country and like talking to people. And some of these venues are selling out like 3,000 seats. Listen, don't drag fish into this. (laughs) Leave the good people of fish. They didn't do anything (laughs) with Jordan Peterson. This all kind of culminates... In 2018, when all of this fame produces his first pop book, which is called 12 Rules for Life, Uh which is based – I did not know this until I read it, but it's based on a series of Quora posts. Like, you know the (laughs) Q&A website? (laughs) It's just like a bunch of like shit post advice that he gave people that he's like whipped up into a book. Oh, my God. I I like really struggled with this section of – the episode because I'm like, okay, we have to talk about like his actual message, right? Like what, what, what is he Mm. saying to people? Right. But then when you actually boil it down, like you actually read his book, I've listened to probably five or 10 lectures. I've listened to every single Joe Rogan podcast. 
everything he's saying is just like straightforward conservative shit. Mm. People keep talking about he's he's like this iconoclastic, challenging thinker, and he's this academic, and he has such like there's a million articles scolding left wing people, and they're like, why can't lefties listen to what he's saying? And like the left keeps like twisting him out of context, mm. and then you get the context, you try to actually engage. And it's like, oh, okay, so the gender wage gap is fake because, you know, women, uh, they leave the workforce to have babies. So, like, that's why they don't get paid enough. Oh, lordy. He says that climate change is fake, but he, he says it in this, like, slightly more academic way where it's like, oh, the way that you pull people out of poverty is through fossil fuels. Like, we need the energy to pull, you know, Chinese people and Indian people out of poverty. So if lefties really cared about alleviating poverty, they would want us to burn as many fossil fuels as possible. Mm. It's like a slightly different spin on it, but like not really if you actually understand what the right is saying about climate change. And also like, okay, so you're someone who like doesn't believe in any mitigation for climate change, ultimately. It's just like straight up and down conservative punditry nonsense. Yeah, it's just like you could read this shit in the National Review anytime since the 1990s. He wants to defund women's studies departments at one point, he says, like, oh, I'm not sure about same-sex couples adopting because, like, children really need, like, a mother and a father in the home. Thanks, James Dobson. Neat. What I think really explains a lot of this, you know, it's 2016. Mm. This is kind of after Trump had been elected, after this really bitter and horrible 2016 election. I think a lot of conservatives were looking for someone who would, like, allow them to keep all of their beliefs, but also reject what had just happened. Like, it was so obvious that Trump was awful. Like, he's this, like, racist, misogynist, corrupt, everything we learned during the election. And people felt kind of icky about voting for this guy, right? And the fact that he was the figurehead of conservatism. And so I think there was this huge unstated demand for, like, allow me to remain a conservative and allow me to support Donald Trump. Right. I want to keep all my beliefs and I want to keep all my anxieties. But I want them to be repackaged and sold to me in like more academic language, like in language that is more palatable to me and makes me feel like I'm challenging dogmas rather than just the stuff that I already believe. Right. Like, I would like to support this candidate, but I don't want to be seen as one of his supporters. Exactly. I would like to support this racist, but I don't want anyone to think that I am racist. How can I do that? Make it seem intellectual. Exactly. Right. Make it seem like it's rooted in some kind of science or some kind of valid critique or make it seem like people who do think that supporting Donald Trump makes you racist are actually like really regressive and they're resisting debate, which is part of a healthy democracy and all of that kind of stuff that is like legitimates what is functionally just like discomfort with a decision that they have made. Yes, exactly. And, and yeah, I don't, I I have nothing to add. I'm just like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So this is also, I think a big part of his appeal to conservatives is this thing that like he's an academic and he's a little bit inscrutable. I think this is also part of the marketing. Like the joke during 2017 was that his Ben and Jerry's flavor was that's not what I meant. (laughs) Very good. This is an excerpt from a very good uh, New York Times profile of Jordan Peterson. Actually, let me send this to you. Yeah, send me a quote. Mr. Peterson illustrates his arguments with copious references to ancient myths, bringing up stories of witches, biblical allegories, and ancient traditions. I ask why these old stories should guide us today. Quote, It makes sense that a witch lives in a swamp. Yeah, he says. Why? Right, that's right. You don't know. It's because those things hang together at a very deep level, right? Yeah. And it makes sense that an old king lives in a desiccated tower. But witches don't exist, and they don't live in swamps, I say. Quote, yeah, they do. They exist. They just don't exist the way you think they exist. They certainly exist. You may say, well, dragons don't exist. It's like, yes, they do. The category predator and the category dragon are the same category. It absolutely exists. It exists absolutely more than anything else. You say, well, there's no such thing as witches. Yeah, I know what you mean. But that isn't what you think when you go see a movie about them. You can't help but fall into these categories. There's no escape from them. Impossible to read this fucking man. So he is taking this sort of Jungian idea about archetypes. Yes. And is like trying to express it in a way that seems very literal. He he's doing the thing that he always fucking does where he says something that is like straightforwardly dumb. Like witches do exist. 
And then you're like, well, no, they don't. Uh, like, obviously. And then he's like, oh, but they do exist because they're in myths. They exist in our heads. And it's like, oh, so you meant exist in a fucking way that nobody uses that word. Great. <laughs> you meant exist in the way that means does not exist. Neat. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I like, he does this all the time. I was listening to this insufferable section of one of his Joe Rogan podcasts where he's talking about, he, he loves to defend like natural, quote unquote, natural hierarchies. Like the, the existing order of society is good, right? This is another very, very core conservative belief, right? Mm. And he's saying, you know, you, you can't, these hierarchies are real. That's why you can't lie your way into being successful. This is like his, his conclusion. Uh-huh. And then Joe Rogan, who like, to his credit, Joe Rogan's actually like a pretty good interviewer. And Joe Rogan's like, mm, what do you mean by that? Didn't Donald Trump like lie his way into success? Like don't rich people pretty frequently lie their way into becoming richer? Yeah. And then this goes back and forth for like five minutes. Finally, he keeps, he needles Jordan Peterson enough that Jordan Peterson is like, well, yes, they're monetarily successful, but they're not successful in the way of having a meaningful life. They're not successful internally. And it's like, right, so you meant success in a fucking fake definition that like now it's taken me five minutes (laughs) to get you to explain your ridiculous definition of this term that nobody uses. Yeah. By the time you get to that point, you've forgotten what he said originally and what his point was. Right. In a capitalist society that defines success primarily by wealth, you invoked right. that language and framework, and then we're like, man, if you took it that way, that's on you. Right. No, you need to be clearer about what you're saying. Right. A company's never been successful selling hamburgers. Well, what about McDonald's? No, no, no. What I meant by success was, do they have a real estate portfolio? <laughs> it's like, well, that's not what success means. Sure, you know? sure. Also, like, this stuff can sound kind of deep and kind of smart, right? You're like, oh, he's saying that witches do exist. Like, it's kind of a provocative idea. And then once you boil it down, all he's really saying, it's like the most banal thing. They're like, yeah, witches exist because there's many myths about witches. Well, yeah, that's really, that's just a really obvious thing to say, right? right? Or the fact that, like, people can lie their way to monetary success, but it doesn't mean that they've achieved some sort of self-actualization. Also pretty banal. Yeah, like, sure. Yeah, okay. Then what? So much of his success is really just, like, taking these conservative, just bog standard conservative views and then like encoding them like fucking enigma device in these like weird roundabout phrases and these like totally just disjointed sentences. And then you have to like decode them. And by the time you figure out what they mean, like you feel smart. Yeah. You're like, oh, we're like vibing. We've gotten on the same page. But it's like he hasn't actually said anything. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that doesn't mean you have a better argument. Right. That doesn't mean that you're making good points. It just means that you're using words that sort of like attract people's attention. I heard, I forget who I'm stealing this from, but somebody said that everything he says is either false or obvious. (laughs) Like, that's true. (laughs) I like that one. I mean, the thing that I was going to say is like, when you step onto TV or uh-huh. you get on mic on the radio or a podcast or whatever, you do have to communicate things in a way that people can understand. And if you don't, that's not actually on them. Right, exactly. That's pretty much just on you. Okay, so we're finally at the point of the episode where we're circling back to the carnivore diet. Okay, let's roll. He comes to the carnivore diet through his daughter, Michaela. This is actually like a pretty sad and pretty understandable story. So Michaela is diagnosed when she's seven years old with chronic juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, that's rough, man. She has her hip and her ankle replaced when she's 16. Whoa! She is on seven different medications by the time she's in college. She has severe depression. She's then taking medications for the depression. She goes to university, but she has to drop out for, you know, a combination of the physical issues and the mental issues. She says at that time she can only really be awake for like six hours a day because she has chronic fatigue. Like, it's just like, just a really awful story. And I think as many people do when they have these, you know, these clusters of like interacting and complex illnesses, she has this like sense of desperation and she starts experimenting with her diet. So in 2015, she cuts out gluten and she sees like this dramatic improvement in like both her physical things and her mental things. 
but it's not quite enough. So that she then sort of switches to keto. It helps a little bit more, but it still feels like it's not quite enough. And then she's surfing the internet and she comes across a woman named Charlene Anderson, uh-huh. a woman who claims that she cured her Lyme disease from an all beef diet. And she says that she's been eating nothing but ribeye steaks for 20 years. Makes me really nervous. So Michaela sees all this and she honestly thinks that it sounds like kind of bananas, but she's like, whatever, like I'll try it, right? Like you'll try anything for a couple of days. And also if you're suffering with this like awful briar patch of various intersecting illnesses, like you're fucking desperate. Mm. So she goes on this all beef diet. According to her, everything cleared up. This is from a post on her blog in 2016. She says, everything wrong with me was diet related. Arthritis, depression, anxiety, lower back pain, chronic fatigue, brain fog, itchy skin, acne, tiny blisters on my knuckles, floaters, mouth ulcers, twitching at night, night sweats, tooth sensitivity, and the list goes on. Everything wrong with me was fixable. Mm. As you heard in the clip in April of 2018, this is two months before he goes on the Joe Rogan podcast, she tells her dad to go on this all beef diet and like maybe it will work for him too. And so he goes on the diet and like you heard him describing, right? Like he got universally 100% better. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to dive into the carnivore diet itself and the winding path that it took to Michaela Peterson's laptop. Mm. I did a Google Trends search because I didn't like know how else to research this. Uh-huh. I cannot express to you like how niche this was. The earliest evidence of this existing that I could find was a bodybuilder in the 1950s who recommended an all-meat diet. You know how bodybuilders have a bulking and a cutting cycle and it's like you know 30 days of this and 90 days of that it's like very regimented sure the all meat diet was like one of those short-term regimens it it wasn't it wasn't like a lifestyle yeah i mean i can't fathom that certainly anyone with like a working knowledge of like sports medicine or any of that kind of stuff would be like yeah yeah yeah, no do this all the time the earliest like kind of sort of mainstream mention of this that i found was in 2006 There's something called the Active Low Carber Forums, which is a message board for people who are doing Atkins. Uh It's kind of branched out now. I'm going to read this to you. This is the the header at the top of its website. It says, support for Atkins diet, protein powder, and Neanderthin diets, (laughs) which is paleo. That's what they call paleo now. <laughs> Neanderthin? You know I love a garbage pun. This is like next level. So in 2006, there was a guy on this forum who was apparently like a pretty prolific commenter whose name was Owsley Stanley, who's like a legendary guy because he was a roadie for the Grateful Dead. Whoa. So he started posting in 2006 on these forums the fact that he had been living an all-meat life for 47 years. Wow. People now, like the sort of carnivore community now, has collated all of his posts, and it's 251 pages long. Oh, my God. This guy wrote like a Bible. Yeah, he wrote a book on the internet. This is an excerpt, and like this is so typical of the way that carnivore people talk about the diet. He says... It requires a powerful will and determination to change to succeed in adopting the quote-unquote extreme diet that this website is based on. Even those who are morbidly obese, as powerful a motivation as any I can imagine, will have cravings for what I call non-food, by which I mean all vegetation and carbs, which will eventually prove irresistible. I mean, when you said (laughs) eating non-foods, I was really prepared for some Michael Pollan business. Right. I didn't expect the next thing to be like, like vegetables. All vegetation and carbs. Jesus (laughs) Christmas. This is like fairly mainstream messaging among the carnivore diet people that like, it's not just like this diet works for me. Everything that isn't animal products is poison. Sorry, Hindus. You've been (laughs) eating mostly non-food. So this kind of sort of bounces around the internet, but it's like super niche. The first mainstream news coverage I can find of this, this is absurd. There's a motherboard article 
in 2017 called Inside the World of the Bitcoin Carnivores, which is... (laughs) A living fucking nightmare. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of like, what else do you put in there to make it worse? Like fire festival. <laughs> it's happening at WeWork. Great. <laughs> so this article chronicles that like this all animal product diet has become popular among Silicon Valley and like not just Silicon Valley, but like a subset of Silicon Valley that is really into cryptocurrency. So There's a guy who's quoted in this article and like every other article about Bitcoin carnivores who says, Bitcoin is a revolt against fiat money and an all meat diet is a revolt against fiat food. What? (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) What's he even talking about? I mean, fiat food doesn't make any fucking sense. It's like fiat money is like government backed money. You know, currency is like fake. Like currency is a social construction on some level, right? If you believe in a dollar and I believe in a dollar, then we can exchange. Yeah. But then applying that to food, like fiat food, it like doesn't make any sense. It's like a nine word sentence. Boy. His metaphor just completely breaks down. I hate <laughs> it extremely much. He says, the people who tell you to eat your six to 10 portions of indigestible toxic grains a day Good. are the same kind of people who tell you central banks have to determine interest rates. Oh my God. <laughs> These things have nothing in common. And also, again, you get this invocation of indigestible toxic grains. This also just feels like it's real. It's just edging closer and closer to complaints about like globalists and like anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It gets real right wing real fast. Yeah, I bet. So I have spent a lot of time unfortunately, in the last month, looking at like the social media of various carnivore influencer dudes, Mm. there's really only two main ones. One is this guy named Sean Baker, who used to be a licensed medical professional, like an actual doctor. But he became such an evangelist for the carnivore diet, it seems that his hospital fired him. His hospital was like, you can't just tell all your patients to switch to an all meat diet, dude. Yeah, He can no longer practice medicine, but he's become this like big influencer guy and he has like a cookbook and everything. Mm. And then the other one is a guy named Paul Saladino. Both of these dudes are like super right-wing guys, you know, flirting with anti-vax stuff. Paul Saladino, I wasn't even aware of this. Paul Saladino is a sunscreen truther. (laughs) I've read a lot of this man's tweets. They're like little Bible verses. One of them says, the best way to protect your skin from the sun is by not eating seed oils. Sunscreen is the worst way. Good. So don't wear sunscreen. He also says, toothpaste is a scam. Liver, heart, meat, equal signs, the best tooth care ever created. Yeah, good. That's good. There's also another guy that I found on YouTube. He just put out a video saying that the Canadian, this Canadian trucker protest thing is a false flag and it's all actors. <laughs> I don't know why. Do that. Anytime we start talking about like public political action or like public tragedies as being actors, I get real nervous. Right. It's just very strange. And also, as we're talking about this, it is nearing lunchtime and I'm like, Man, I could really go for a steak. I know. I I, know. <laughs> I made some ground beef earlier this week. I was like, oh, and I'm in the mood for ground beef. Yeah. <laughs> it, does sound, it does sound good. <laughs> okay. So I want to spend most of the rest of the episode talking about some of the main myths of the carnivore diet. So if you read the carnivore books and you look at the carnivore influencer accounts, you find the same three factual claims repeated a million times. And I want to actually take these seriously. Mm. So the first myth is that plants are bad for you. (laughs) This is a quote from one of the Bitcoin carnivores in a USA Today article. Plants are varying levels of toxic to humans, hence why so many of them are poisonous. And even some of the ones we can eat, such as beans, must first be carefully prepared and cooked to remove toxic proteins. Hey, man. Some plants are hemlock, so So, all of them are probably hemlock. There's also this thing, we debunked this on one of the bonus episodes, so I'm not going to go too deeply into it, but they keep bringing up this thing of anti-nutrients. Oh, I remember this. Do you remember this? So my recollection, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that anti-nutrients are, like, really are part of many fruits and vegetables, and that they 
prevent absorption of some vitamins or minerals, but at mm-hmm. a, just an incredibly low level. Yeah? Yes. There are some little elements in like beans and broccoli and some other vegetables that reduce the absorption of iron. They don't completely prevent you from absorbing any iron. They just reduce the amount of iron that you can get from food. And 99% of them boil off. Like they they come off when the food is cooked. So all of these anti-nutrients are basically just like a non-entity. But the carnivore people have seized on these as like, look, like plants are actually sucking the nutrients out of you. And it's like, well, they don't negate all the nutrients that fruits and vegetables have. Yeah. There's also a sort of sub- category of this is that they love to highlight, quote unquote, all of the indigenous societies that have lived on an all meat diet. So this is from an abysmal website called Diagnosis Diet. It says, to the best of my knowledge, the world has yet to produce a civilization which has eaten a vegan diet from childhood through death, whereas there are numerous examples throughout recorded history of people from a variety of cultural, ethnic, and geographical backgrounds who have lived on mainly meat diets for decades, lifetimes, generations. Mm. This, for some reason, is like very important to the carnivore people, that like there are societies that have lived on all meat diets and like have been fine. The the sort of the obvious one, like the one that they bring up the most is like the Inuits in the far north. Mm. I looked into this expecting to debunk it, but it's actually like true that the vast majority of their calories came from animal-based sources. Mm. But this is an excerpt from a Discover Magazine profile of Patricia Cochran, who's a Alaska native who writes about her childhood growing up there. Mm -hmm. She says, our meat was seal and walrus, marine mammals that live in cold water and have lots of fat. We used seal oil for our cooking as a dipping sauce for food. We hunted ducks, geese, and little land birds like quail. We caught crabs and lots of fish. Salmon, whitefish, tomcod, pike, and char. The elders liked stinkfish, fish buried in seal bags or cans in the tundra and left to ferment. In the short subarctic winters, the family searched for roots and greens and, best of all from a child's point of view, wild blueberries, crowberries, or salmon berries, which my aunts would mix with whipped fat to make a special treat akin to ice cream. Oh my god. I bet that's beyond. So, like, this is a society that, yes, did get somewhere like 90 to 95% of the calories came from various animal products, but it's also like extremely diverse, Yeah, right? They're having fermented foods, they're having oils, the skin of whales is apparently very high in vitamin C, which is why these Mm. communities didn't have rates of scurvy. So it's like, yes, they're eating an all meat diet essentially, but like they're doing it in a context where like they've kind of evolved and like adapted cultural practices around this and they're doing it in a specific way. They're not just like having the same thing over and over again, three meals a day. Well, and it's not all meat. Right. It might be mostly meat. I mean, like, and you could frankly make a similar argument about vegetarianism and veganism, right? That there are plenty of societies where vegetarianism is a norm. That doesn't mean that because it wasn't completely vegan by today's standards all the way, all the time. Right. It's, it's, uh, Searching through history to prove your weird point about your extremely contemporary diet. It's also so fucking weird to me because you can find these debates online of like, well, you know, how how many berries were they eating? Or like, how long was the summer growing season when you could find roots, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, what are we proving here? The fact that there's a society at some time, and there's other examples. I always pick the same like six or seven examples of other hunter-gatherer societies that lived on an all-meat diet. It's like, fine. But there's thousands of societies throughout human history. Most of them were omnivorous. Mm. It's not really an argument to say that like this one society lived on this diet. Therefore, it's the best diet. The fact that the Inuits did this, the only thing that proves is that it's like possible for humans and like humans don't instantly die living on this diet, which like, yeah, that's kind of useful information. But it says nothing about an optimal diet. Yeah. So then what? Right. (laughs) So... The second myth Mm. is that meat is like a more pure way to eat or like a cleaner way to eat. There's a lot of weird purity stuff wrapped up in this. But one of the things that's very interesting to me is that when Michaela Peterson talks about doing her version of the carnivore diet, she tells The Atlantic that when she's doing this, she allows herself to drink bourbon and vodka. What? The author of the piece is like, 
well, wait a minute. If this whole thing is about like clean eating, <laughs> the reason it works is like toxic, you know, gets toxins out of your system. Yeah. You then allow yourself alcohol. Well, it's a disinfectant, Mike. Right. Exactly. It's <laughs> very healthy. And also like a lot of the sort of Silicon Valley bros talk about, you know, plants are poisonous and it's toxic, whatever. But then they also talk about how they allow themselves to drink coffee on the diet. And like, well, coffee's a plant. Why are there these carve outs? And there's one one of the carnivore influencer guys. You know, they only eat beef and salt. But mm. he says that the, the salt has to be Himalayan salt. What the fuck is this? The fucking like $7 salt at the store. It feels like the um, bulletproof coffee stuff, which is like put mm-hmm. butter in your coffee, but it doesn't work unless it's grass fed. Where you're like, what? Yes. Why? Dude, the beef people have a weird fetish for grass fed, man. Everybody says that you have to do it with grass fed beef or else it doesn't work. Uh... Which like I fucking looked into this. The reason why this diet quote-unquote works especially for weight loss is because fat and protein make you feel full sure this is why the atkins diet quote-unquote works this is why keto works it's like you just feel really full if you eat like just a steak and nothing else right and one of the main reasons that that works is because most steaks are like high in fat right sure but grass-fed beef is much lower in fat yeah (laughs) like this was kind of the marketing of grass-fed beef originally it was like diet beef so (sighs) The whole, like, the the logic of the all-beef diet completely breaks down because you're going for the kind of beef that doesn't fit the parameters, like the biological parameters that you're actually going for. You should be looking for highest fat available. Mm. It's the same with vitamin stuff. If you look at the rhetoric of the people recommending grass-fed beef, they always point out that grass-fed beef has two to three times more omega-3s And this is actually true. I looked this up. There's, if you look at a hamburger patty, a normal beef patty has like 30 milligrams of omega-3s and then a grass-fed hamburger patty has 90 milligrams of omega-3s. You look at that as like a lay person and you're like, wow, 30 versus 90. Like that's a lot higher, obviously. Yeah. But then what they don't give you is the broader context. So if you go look up the daily recommended allowance of omega-3s, it's 1,600 milligrams. Yeah. To get up to your daily allowance, you'd have to eat 20 hamburger patties. (laughs) Even a grass-fed hamburger patty has less omega-3s than a single walnut. (laughs) So it's like... They defend the carnivore diet on the basis of the nutrients that it has. But you're like, well, if you're interested in nutrients, then you would be eating a varied diet. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. I mean, you mentioned this in a previous episode, so I have, it's been on my mind ever since, that like, there is this weird ritualization. Oh, yeah. Right? That is like, no, it can't just be butter. It has to be this particular kind of butter. It can't just be this. It has to be the specific, like, it can't just be salt. You can't use Morton's. you got to have Himalayan pink salt, which all sort of contributes to this thing that we've definitely talked about before on the show, which is basically like, if it doesn't work, then that's on you. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. The butter was grass fed, but not hormone free or it was hormone free, but not grass fed. Yeah. It's so nitpicky in its sort of application currently, but when it looks for historical examples to legitimate itself, it is extremely not nitpicky. Right. (laughs) I mean, there's a very good article in the Atlantic about this diet and all the sort of social constructions that go along with it. And he says, the beneficial effects of a compelling personal narrative that helps explain and give order to the world can be absolutely physiologically real. It's well documented that the immune system is modulated by our lifestyles, from how much we sleep and move to how well we eat and how much we drink. Mm. Most importantly, the immune system is also modulated by stress, which tends to be a byproduct of a perceived lack of control or order. When it comes to dieting, the inherent properties of the substances ingested can be less important than the eater's conceptualization of them, as either tolerable or intolerable, good or bad. What's Mm. actually therapeutic may be the act of elimination itself. Mm. Various other debunky websites have pointed out that there are people who claim to have cured juvenile chronic arthritis with a vegan diet, mm. you can see the same results, the same sorts of anecdotes of I cured this and I cured that with all kinds of different diets across time, across cultures. It's people believing in this yeah. that is producing 
the health benefits, which are real, yeah. which can be very significant. Yeah, right? as the placebo effect has been right. proven to be very effective when people genuinely believe that they're getting some kind of remedy, right? right. It's it's actually very similar to Jordan Peterson's whole thing of finding order amid your own personal chaos. Mm. Like it makes sense that this is a way for people to process their own experience, especially if you're suffering from a chronic illness, right? You've been looking your whole life for something that works. And like this is so regimented, it it, it sort of it, it feels almost medical, right? Yeah. There, there's this pain that goes along with it. There's this monotony, kind of like taking a pill. It, it's like you're turning food into this more medical paradigm. Yeah, but it can't be that, Mike. It's got to be. No, it's the, it's, it's got to be that it's all just beef, salt, and water. Grass. It's grass beef. Definitely not socially influenced. It's definitely not right. shaped by your expectations. None of that. It's just beef, salt, water. So. The final myth we're going to debunk, this one's a little bit longer. Carnivore people say quite frequently that meat is what made us human. This is an excerpt from the Grateful Dead guys somewhere in the 251 pages. Oh my God, delightful. He says, humans were totally hunting peoples until the end of the Paleolithic age. No Paleolithic archaeological dig has ever produced any food residues from vegetables. The so-called Neanderthin and paleo diet thus are both nonsense. True Paleolithic people were total carnivores and ate no veggies whatsoever. In the relatively short evolutionary period since the consumption of vegetables as food, there has never been any real adaptation to such low-grade, low-energy, difficult-to-digest foods. Because we have no adaptation to digesting or processing vegetables, they are basically all very bad for us. So, two things. One, (laughs) citation fucking needed, my guy. Also, this plays into this absolutely bizarre trope that is like, we just need to return to our roots. We just need to, like, eat and behave like cavemen is sort of the idea, Mm -hmm. right? But if you're looking for, like, when have we as humanity been at our healthiest and had our longest life expectancies, it is within the last hundred years, everybody. <laughs> like, it is, like, historically very recent. Well, also, we're not even talking about the right fucking species. So th- <laughs> this drives me nuts that, like, this thing of meat made us human or whatever, it's actually true that two million years ago, it appears homo erectus. Mm. which is like the precursor species that has now died out to humans. One of the theories is that the consumption of meat like allowed Homo erectus to thrive as a species because meat has much more calories because this was before cooking. There was no way to get this kind of calories out of food. So you were just like chewing like roots and stuff. Like we were basically like chimpanzees. Mm. Our precursor species, we think only ate like two to three percent of its diet was meat But then once you go to much higher levels of meat, you then have the excess calories that then you can kind of pour into a larger brain. So what happened over the course of evolution was what eventually became humans, our brains expanded in size by like 300%. Like we got way bigger brains. It it takes a lot more calories to have bigger brains because brains use up so much energy. So you sort of need to have more calories coming into your species. Mm. And so the explanation is that like maybe we did switch to meat eating And that allowed us to have larger brains and also smaller guts because it's easier to digest. You don't need as many like layers of your gut to like break down root fibers and shit. So that is actually like a fairly credible theory on this, but it's like much more disputed. It's not clear that that happened. Right. It's a theory. Yeah. And it's like there's other, there's other versions of it where like it might've actually been cooking that did that because when you start to cook vegetables, like, you know, think of a raw potato versus a cooked potato. You have, like, way more calories that are getting out of it. Once it's soft, you don't have to digest it as much. You can absorb more. And then the the biggest thing is, like, what does it mean to say that meat made us human? Right. It's like you could also say that, like, fire made us human. You could say that social organization cooperation made us human. You could, I mean, you could say basically anything made us human. It, it, it's like a totally meaningless thing to say. Well, it's also just a fundamentally weird and flawed premise to say – Because there's this sort of evolutionary theory about the role of meat, it does not then follow that only eating meat would facilitate your individual health. 
right? In the space of one lifetime. Evolution is something that takes place over the course of centuries, millennia. Right. The idea that you could do something that somebody thinks contributed to evolution and that would then either facilitate your individual health or like, I don't know, make you personally evolve, which is not how evolution works. Like it's just so like the logic just falls apart on like any level of examination. And this is also, it's so, it's so funny reading actual scientists that work on like early man and precursors to man. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like this doesn't <laughs> like this isn't even Homo erectus isn't even the same species. There's there's nothing that implies about that theory. A that they were eating only meat, which makes no sense that a species would go from like roughly 3% meat consumption to 100% yeah. when there were all kinds of like vegetation available that we had been eating for the entire origin of our species. Uh-huh. Even the scientists like I I found an interview with the woman who actually like proposed this meat eating hypothesis originally and they're like what do you think about the paleo diet she's like oh it's bullshit (laughs) like it doesn't make any sense like you can't even get her on board right yeah i will say we have not gotten a ton of requests to cover the paleo diet but the ones that we have gotten are from Mm -hmm. people who study like the science of early man oh i need to (laughs) email those people will you please cover this people are constantly talking about like we need to like behave like cavemen we need to like do all this shit and there's like zero evidence yes it's this weird like western class privileged sort of fetishization of a less developed society it's james cameron making avatar (laughs) 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 but it's like what what i think is fascinating about this is like okay we should we should eat like our our you know, human precursors, ancestors, Mm. this is what made us human, fine. But then when? Between two million years ago and now, which society should we be aiming for? There's actually really interesting articles about the adaptations that humans have had to agriculture. Mm. So there's some societies that have been drinking a lot more milk. Uh Northern Europeans have way more lactase and they can process lactose, whereas like most people in East Asia cannot process lactose. Right. Okay, well, should I be drinking milk? Is it right to be drinking milk? Well, where, where are your parents from and their parents and their parents? Yeah. It's not clear to me why we should be looking two million years ago to like a species that no longer exists when much more recent history is available if that's even if that's even what like the logic that we should be looking at. Because there's tons of research on early humans and like the enzymes they had in their saliva could like break down starchy tubers and stuff like there's I went like down a deep rabbit hole in this stuff. It's super interesting, hmm. but it's just like it, it's not a credible view. A that like early ancestors should be dictating how we're eating today in general, and B that early ancestors were eating all meat. Right. It is way the fuck easier to go pick some berries, to go find some mushrooms, to forage, than it is to track down, kill, cook, and right. eat an animal. So. This is okay. This is my attempt to like bring us full circle. Here, here we go. <laughs> Brace yourself. What is interesting to me about the intersection between all of these like bullshit carnivore myths that are bouncing around the internet and Jordan Peterson, mm. everything we've just talked about is demonstrating Jordan Peterson's one insight that people respond to narratives and not facts. Uh-huh. All of the reasons why people do the carnivore diet, it's fucking narratives. This yeah. is what makes us human. This is, there's a lot of weird masculinity shit. This is what makes us men. It's all bullshit, but it's all like a story. It's a very convincing story that you tell yourself not only about why this diet works for you, but why it is superior to all the other diets. Yeah. You just want to connect with your sense of like power and ruggedness and whatever as like a dude and you feel disconnected from that currently. So the idea of being like just only beef, like man food really resonates with that in a way that Weight Watchers points, for example, might not. It's also funny to me that Jordan Peterson totally rejects this thing that like, you know, gender is socially constructed or race is socially constructed. He hates this shit. And he's actively socially constructing it. Yeah. (laughs) His entire career is this like perfect demonstration of how you can fall into exactly the traps that you yourself have identified. So like, that's the thing that happens when you sort of go, oh, nothing's socially constructed. Everything is real. 
regardless of what you say and what you want to believe about the nature of gender or race or whatever other thing, like it just is real. So deal with it. And what that allows for is it allows for people with a great deal of privilege to construct their own affirming narratives while also shutting down anyone else's affirming narratives, right? Right. It is such a weird, blatant moment of like, you're making shit up. Anyway, here's the shit that I made up. Right. And also and also presenting it as fact and presenting it as settled science too. Yeah. Of like, well look, you know, the uh meat's what made us human. So look, you're saying a vegan diet works for you. I'm sorry. Like that's just not a human way to eat. Yeah. That's an ideological argument. But you don't realize that it's an ideological argument yourself. You think that you're just stating a fact. Well, and even if you do, you're not going to say that. Right, exactly. Like, you've wrapped up too much of your political and cultural capital in insisting that your viewpoint, it's a very convenient thing to do, to say, uh, everyone else has biased viewpoints, but mine (laughs) is based in science, and you cannot question it. Right? Like, it is this sort of self-preserving logic that is utterly bizarre but there is this kind of head in the sand response to any kind of criticism of it that's like nope mine is real yeah mine is real and rational yours is made up and fake so i thought that i should do a whole thing like debunking the carnivore diet and talking about you know studies and stuff but it's like do we have to debunk it (laughs) it's one food (laughs) like i i've seen i've seen these like debunkings that are like, you know, red meat is like linked to higher cholesterol and heart attacks. And I'm like, it's one food. (laughs) Like broccoli is very good for you. You shouldn't go on an all broccoli diet. Right. So the idea that like we even have to do, like have to make any work to say like, don't eat nothing but ribeyes. Can humans live if they eat nothing but ribeyes? Probably or like apparently. Yeah. I mean, part of me feels like you actually have to give like fewer warnings to people not to try this in an episode like this because the diet is so fucking deranged. I mean, there's so many articles where like, I'm a writer and I'm going to go on the all meat diet. And like no one lasts longer than like five days. Yeah. One poor guy from the guardian makes it like three days. Like some dude from men's health just like totally fucking breaks down and like quits the assignment. Like people cannot do this. Yeah. The final thing I want to say about this is there's like a number of side effects from this diet that are like, I don't remember like, backyard downstairs stuff that I don't really want to talk about on the podcast. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and assume you're just talking about constipation, right? Like a zero fiber diet. There's a Well, there's a period of like fountainous, not (laughs) constipatedness. And then there's a period of like, yeah, because there's no fiber. Then it becomes like the the opposite. Yes. I do. I do like quietly pressing you to talk about poop. I mean, I don't know why you've done this to me. What are you doing? It is a particular (laughs) favorite of mine. (laughs) But then, I mean, there's all kinds of weird side effects of this. Sure. Medical professionals are unanimous in like, don't do this diet. It's really bad news. But one of the bad newsnesses about it is that eating this for too long, like one food, can, it seems like, change your gut bacteria and change what your body is able to absorb. Oh. After you've been on this diet for a while, you can't eat anything else. And you'll have like really bad attacks and like kind of allergic reactions if you eat anything other than just, you know, ribeye steaks and salt. So Mm. this is ultimately what happens to Jordan Peterson. What? Next episode, we are going to talk about how this... it's a cliffhanger? It's a cliffhanger. God damn it, Mike. Next episode, we are going to talk about how Jordan Peterson's deviation from this diet starts a chain of events... That ends up with him in a medically induced coma in Moscow. What? Don't Google. Between now and then, Aubrey, Michael, don't go this on the is internet. So mean to spend an entire episode being like, look at the rise of all this bullshit. Look at this dude is making these wild ass fucking claims about how people need to only eat beef, salt, and water. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, by the way, he's gonna get his comeuppance. You're gonna hear about it in two weeks. See ya! Aubrey. <laughs> Reality is a place of myth, and podcasts are a place of me fucking with you. <laughs> That's what I learned. That's what I learned from a book I read. <laughs>